Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joshua Jay. You're listening to How Magicians Think. Was Houdini as great as everyone says? How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua Jay, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. I'm going to begin this episode, which is on Houdini, with a Houdini story you have never heard. This is my favorite Houdini story, but unlike the five or six stories you hear over and over again on every documentary about Houdini, this one is virtually unknown, and I think it says the most about Houdini as a person. Then after the story, in this episode, we're going to speak with Houdini biographer Joe Posnanski. I think he was a very modern guy. I think we know Houdini, because I think if you go on Twitter, you look at some of the people who are out there who are just... Famous. I think you see a little bit of Houdini. And then I'll speak with an array of magic historians arguing over whether Houdini was a genius or a fraud. Magic historian and performer Mike Caveney will tell us why he isn't particularly impressed by Houdini. I am known as the Houdini hater. I've come to the conclusion that he wasn't the greatest magician of all time, as most people think. So Houdini started out as a magician, did a magic act, and he had almost no success. And then Jim Steinmeier and Jamie and Swiss will make a different case. He was a truly dynamic performer, and that's what magicians who saw him said, that there was a kind of spark that went through the audience when he came on stage. And I think he probably would translate his abilities to today's media, and I think he'd be very successful at it. Harry Houdini was an extraordinary individual. There was never anyone like him. And it always kind of makes me laugh a little bit when I hear escape artists and daredevils announce that they're competing with Houdini because they're competing with a dead guy, a guy who's been gone for 100 years, who uh, spent a lifetime out doing them before they were born. And I love this back and forth because it just proves what's so essential about Houdini, which is that everybody who looks at him looks at him a little bit differently. And then at the end, I'll take you through the most misunderstood and controversial part of Houdini's life, how he died. But first, the story on Houdini. Houdini, for a brief time in his career, was a movie star. As cinema emerged as a viable market, Houdini was at the cusp of this new form of entertainment, and he wanted to make silent pictures. And so he made a movie in which an airplane with Houdini inside flew right past another airplane and he was going to transfer from one plane to the other via a rope hanging in midair. 
So here he is. He's flying in this plane. The rope is dangled down. He goes on the rope. Another plane comes right by and is supposed to transfer Houdini from one to the biplane wing of the other. And all of a sudden, the planes get locked into each other. And you know how fast planes can fall out of the sky when they aren't coasting along. So these planes go into a death spin and they are spinning and spinning as they get closer and closer to the ground and they crash. But how about this for a crazy story? Houdini survives. He's really banged up. He has bandages and cuts and bruises. But the next day he gives a press conference and he gives the good news that he survived his crazy airplane crash and that even better, they got some of the most amazing footage, some of the first footage of a crash of that nature, and it's going to be appearing in his upcoming film, and he uses it to plug the film. Now, here's the thing. The crash was real. The crash was dangerous. But Houdini watched that crash from the comfort of the ground. Houdini was many things, but he wasn't totally insane. So he had a stunt double a man named Kennedy, in the plane acting in his part. Now, they were filming this partly from the sky and partly from the ground. And at this moment, when Kennedy was to transfer as Houdini as a body double from one plane to the other, it really did get locked in this death spin. It really did fall from the sky. And astoundingly, both the pilot and Kennedy did survive. But Houdini was, above all things, a genius marketer. And as soon as he saw what was happening, lights went off in his head about how he could use this. So he went to the hospital, he paid Kennedy's bills, and he put a contract on the hospital bed and said, sign your story over to me. I want to be the one in the plane. I want to be the one doing the stunt. And I will take credit for this for my movie. And that's exactly what he did. Now, I love this story because of what it says about Houdini, the character. I don't think Houdini acted unethically. I wouldn't have been in that plane, certainly. But he saw an opportunity because he understood the gripping fascination that the public has with danger. And people don't like theatrical danger. They don't like fake escapes that are there and you know the performer is going to make it out alive and it's just a show or it's just a movie. He knew and understood the importance of real, palpable danger. And that's the kind of publicity you just can't buy. And this story is about Houdini seeing this danger and appropriating it and using it to promote his latest venture, which in this case is a film. Houdini remains different things to different people. Mike Caveney, who is a great performer and magic historian, isn't anti-Houdini. He's just puzzled that with so many other great characters who were Houdini's contemporaries, why there's this great fascination with Houdini himself. As I continued to research magic history and all, I've come to the conclusion that he wasn't the greatest magician of all time, as most people think. What he was the greatest of, maybe of all time, certainly of the 20th century, was self-promotion. He was the greatest publicist ever. And that is proven by the fact that he's been dead almost 100 years. And most people, that's the only magician they can name. And we still talk about him. 
So there's a great story that Di Vernon tells, and Di Vernon to this day is known as the professor because he is the creator of close-up magic as we know it today. He's the one that took pocket tricks and turned them into close-up miracles. Uh, any magician today studies Di Vernon's many, many books and theories. And Vernon was alive for most of the 20th century. And back in the day, he knew Houdini. He also knew that Houdini claimed that he could explain any trick if he saw it three times. So Houdini met Vernon at a banquet, a magician's banquet in Chicago. And Vernon says, hey, look at this. And Vernon took the top card of the deck and showed it to Houdini and slid it under the new top card. So it was now in the second position. And then he turned it over and that card was back on top. And Houdini said, do it again. So Vernon took the same card, showed it, slid it under the top card, snapped his fingers, turned over the top card, and it was back on top. And Houdini said, do it again. And then he said, do it again. And by the fifth time, Bess, his wife, was standing there and said, Harry, admit it, you're fooled. He says, come on, Vernon, do it again. And Vernon, of course, was not just tuned into, but he was the leader of the underground of card magicians at that time. And so anytime any new discovery was made, it would pass among this very tight little circle of magicians. It had not gotten as far as Houdini. And if you don't know what Vernon was doing then, yes, it would fool you over and over and over. And it fooled Houdini. And he just couldn't bring himself to say, Vernon, you beat me. But I have a theory. So Houdini started out as a magician, did a magic act. And when you see photographs of that magic act, he's got a little table with a bunch of apparatus on it. They were standard off-the-shelf tricks. And it is the exact same tricks that everybody else was doing. And he had almost no success. He worked in a sideshow. He worked in a circus. And he was getting nowhere. Then he added this trunk trick to his act, where he traded places, first with his brother, later with Bess, the metamorphosis, and it was amazing, and people really liked it. An agent manager saw him and said, I don't know why you're fooling around with those tricks. Why don't you just get these people to tie you up and put handcuffs on you and escape from them, and then do your metamorphosis, and you're the escape king. And he did, and within a couple years, he was a, a vaudeville star. From about 1900, when he went to England, and then went to the continent, and traveled around Europe, he became a global sensation as an escape artist. And he remained that way for the next almost 25 years. And at the very end of his life, he decided he would take out a full evening show again. And it would be one-third escapes, one-third spiritualist exposés, and one-third magic. And I don't think it was that great. He did a number of stock tricks. There's the, the great story that Orson Welles told, where Orson, when he was a kid, he met Houdini in Chicago. His father took him to the theater, and they ended up backstage, and he met Houdini. And Orson was interested in magic already, and he, he said, I want to become a magician too. And Houdini sat down the young Orson Welles and said, listen, son, the secret to being a great magician is practice. You have to practice, practice, practice every trick a thousand times till you can do it in your sleep. And at that moment, Jim Collins, Houdini's head assistant, stuck his head in the door 
and said, Harry, that uh, vanishing lamp trick just arrived from Germany. Houdini said, great, we'll put it in the show tonight, which tells you everything you need to know. The book, Elliot's Last Legacy, Houdini published that after Elliot passed away. And Dr. Elliot was known as absolutely the finest card magician in the world. And he wrote this amazing book, and Houdini published it. And in the introduction, Houdini basically says the only two people on earth that can do these moves is Dr. Elliot and myself. And the other magicians at the time did exactly what Josh just did. They just shook your head and said, you have got to be kidding me. This guy's ego knows no bounds. But that was Harry. But Jamie Ian Swiss, another fine performer and historian, feels differently. I think there was an arrogance in him. I think there was an ego in him that was hard to manage, probably, if you weren't really a pal. I mean, Houdini could be a great guy, and he could be great to people. He honored many of his predecessors. He cleaned up grave sites of great magicians. He was friends with Keller, the world's greatest magician in the generation just before Harry. So he had his admirable traits, and he had his friends. But he was, I think, a difficult guy to get along with, and... There's a whole other part of Houdini, which is the latter portion of his life that he was concerned with skepticism and exposing fraudulent spirit mediums. Famously, Harry Houdini met Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes books, who was a public celebrity of tremendous repute and popularity in that era and a public in- considered a public intellectual. He was also a major promoter of spiritualism. When they first met, Harry, who was completely self-educated, was taken with the idea of becoming friends with someone like Conan Doyle, and their friendship was genuine. The families visited together repeatedly, the entire families. Early on in that process, Harry sent Conan Doyle a copy of his book, A Magician Among the Spirits, and Conan Doyle took issue with the notion that Harry had made a reference to the Davenport brothers, which were a popular performance act of spiritualist effects that occurred in a cabinet, who didn't make clear claims one way or the other of whether they were real or not real, and many people thought they were real, and Conan Doyle was one of them. And Houdini, I think, was not dishonest in his responses to Doyle. He was going to be true to his fundamental beliefs and worldview, But he soft-pedaled them. He he was not didactic with Doyle. It was really doomed to failure because Doyle was a passionate believer. Eventually, it came to a head with Doyle, and the families were visiting, and Lady Doyle, Doyle's wife, was an amateur spiritualist herself at that point, and she was practicing private seances of automatic writing, where the spirit writes through the hand of the medium. And Doyle really wanted Houdini to sit with her because this was the thing that was going to convince him. And I don't think Harry wanted to do it at all. But eventually, out of politeness, he agreed. And famously, she contacted the spirit of his dead mother, with whom he was famously close. And tragically, coming across overseas, traveling back, didn't make it in time to be by her side when she had died. Contacted the spirit of his mother and wrote many, many pages of spirit writing through her hand. 
And in the end, the Doyles considered this a success and that it would convince Houdini. However, it was the opposite. He tried to be polite at the time and restrained, but she began by drawing the sign of a cross. Houdini's father was a rabbi. She began by calling him Harry. His mother never once in her life called him Harry. She called him Eric. The entire thing was written in English. She only spoke German. And on and on from there. And eventually, Conondor wouldn't leave it alone. And it, it eventually fractured their relationship because Houdini was not about to lie about what he believed. He believed she was sincere. She believed in what she was doing. She was not trying to deliberately deceive him, but she was deceiving herself. She was a complex guy. As we know, Houdini was not a great magician. He loved magic and included magic in his final tour. But he probably wasn't a great magician. But on the other hand, those who say that Houdini's success was entirely due to his PR abilities, I think that's nonsense. Yes, he was a great PR guy, sure. But that's because he had the goods to back it up. He had something to promote that was really substantial. If you read about the feats he accomplished, just in terms of his escape career, there was never anyone like him. And there has barely ever been anyone like him since. Would I have uh, liked him or found him personally admirable or likable? Maybe not. But I nevertheless admire and respect what he accomplished. Joe Posnanski isn't a magician. He's a sports writer, an acclaimed author, and fascinated with Houdini the man. And he wrote an excellent biography on Houdini, which I hope you'll check out. And he had a different perspective on Eric Weiss. He was unbelievably ambitious. That was the thing from him from a very young age. He wanted something larger than life. And it was the thing that drove him. It was the thing that made him stick with it when it looked like it was an he was going to be an absolute failureism in magic at all. It was the thing that forced him to take chances. Houdini is so many different things. And I think one of my favorite quotes is Jim Steinmeier saying, the one thing that you can say about Houdini is he loved magic. He destroys or, or tries to unmask Robert Houdin because basically there's no room at the top for anybody but Harry Houdini. But then he also in that very same book, uncovers and tells the story of all of these magicians who had been forgotten and brought them back to life. So he brought this incredible thing to magic at the same time that he was trying to destroy his idol. It's He was an incredibly complicated character. He clearly did have a big heart, and he clearly did have a cruelty to him. He was incredibly generous with his money, with his time, with his, he loved kids. He never had kids. And he also was incredibly rude and cruel to, to fellow magicians. But a lot of those magicians were his friends and his enemies. Like it was just a big life. This thing that Houdini was, if he, he certainly didn't start it and he wasn't necessarily the best at it, but he was the one that knew how to promote it in a way that was different from anybody else. One of my favorite things about Houdini is in 1899, he finally makes it in America. He gets a couple of breaks and he actually becomes kind of a big star, a big vaudeville star in America. He's making good money. And right in the middle of that, this is after 10 years of suffering and failure and and near starvation at times. And he finally makes it in 1899. 
And midway through that year, he goes, I'm going to Europe. He just leaves. It starts all over again. What what kind of person does that? But that, it's like always wanted something bigger, bigger, bigger. And of course, he goes to Europe. It works amazingly. He becomes bigger. He becomes this worldwide sensation, comes back to America, and he's in a whole different stature. But that mindset, to me, tells everything you need to know about Houdini. He was never satisfied. If you watch the 1953 film on Houdini starring Tony Curtis, you would believe that Houdini died because of a failed underwater escape. If you read into other Houdini lore, you might think that he died in the Hudson River under a sheet of ice. But none of these things are true. You might have heard that Houdini died from being punched in the stomach, but that's an oversimplification too. I'm going to end this episode by taking you through an exact play-by-play of what really happened when Houdini died. So in order to understand this story, you have to get into Houdini's mindset. The year is 1926, and it's a very different Houdini than the one usually depicted in photos and early video. This is a middle-aged Houdini. Houdini was always pictured with next to no clothes on, very muscular, at the height of his powers. But he had to tackle with something that he didn't anticipate before, and that is middle age. He was now an adult, somebody whose best physical years were probably behind him. And he's exhausted. He's mentally exhausted because his wife, Bess, is recuperating from minor ailment in Buffalo, and he wants to be with her by her side, but he can't because he's on tour. And he's physically exhausted because he busted his ankle at a previous show a week before. He can't cancel these shows. They've already been booked. So he's hobbling around from one venue to the other. When he's not on stage, he's trying to stay off of this ankle because he's injured. So put yourself in Houdini's shoes. He's exhausted. And we go now to McGill University in Canada. And he's backstage and he's reading through his mail in a robe. And he's allowed two students from the university to come backstage and interview him for the school newspaper. And as was his way, he was bragging. Houdini was extolling the virtues of a good diet to these kids. He was letting them feel his forearm and his biceps and explaining the regime that he had to keep his body in top form. And while he chatted with these two students, one of them, a guy named Smilovich, Smiley as they called him, was sketching his likeness. He had liked a sketch Smilovich had done and said, you can come backstage tomorrow and sketch me. So there was Smilovich, and there was this other student, and they were backstage talking with Houdini. Now, Houdini was reclining on a couch at this point, laying down, half engaged with the kids, and half reading through his mail. And now, a third student enters. J. Gordon Whitehead, a mysterious figure greatly debated even to this day. J. Gordon Whitehead isn't young like these other students, 18, 19. He's 30 years old, far past the age of the typical student. He's very tall, about six foot three, and you have to compare that to Houdini, who was not even five foot three. So there's a huge disparity in size between these two people. And J. Gordon Whitehead sits down and starts talking with Houdini, but it's a forced conversation. J. Gordon Whitehead doesn't have the charm or natural charisma of the other two kids, and he steers the conversation awkwardly. And he says, Mr. Houdini, is it true that you can absorb any blow above the waist? And in fact, there's some debate about this, but scholars believe that Houdini would sometimes boast that, yes, he could absorb any blow above the waist. But that was when he was prepared for it. He would hunch forward, he would flex his stomach muscles, and look, I don't think any of us want to be punched in the stomach. But if we said, hey, 
I'm going to punch you in the stomach on the count of three, and you got to go through this. You would tense your muscles, you would lean into it, and you would survive. You wouldn't be happy, but you would survive. That's how Houdini would invite somebody strong from the audience to come on stage and punch him in the stomach. Many scholars dispute that this ever happened, but in any event, this is reportedly what was said. Houdini was laying down at the time and turned. He looked to the side, to his right, and up. And as he was standing up to answer J. Gordon Whitehead's question, Whitehead punched him in the lower abdomen three times with what eyewitnesses, Smilovich in particular, described as hard, heavy blows. Boom, boom, boom. Houdini was totally unprepared and fell over. Whitehead followed him to the ground and delivered several successive blows to Houdini on the ground until Houdini could finally muster up the voice to say, that's quite enough. Houdini was immediately visually shaken, and he was a little startled by being punched by this young student unexpectedly. But what neither Houdini knew nor anybody else at the time knew is that Houdini was suffering from appendicitis. Now, it's unclear whether being punched in the stomach successively by three hard blows and several follow-up blows would exacerbate that condition. But whatever the case, it certainly didn't help. The appendix ruptured. Now, Houdini was a proud man. He didn't want to admit that he was hurt. He didn't like doctor's offices, so he refused medical attention and carried on with the show. But on a stage in Detroit four days later, he collapsed with a fever and was taken to the hospital. Now, when he was at the hospital, he engaged with his doctor, a man named Kennedy, and it became increasingly clear that Houdini was in trouble and that he probably wouldn't be leaving the hospital. Houdini said, you know, I always wanted to be a doctor. I just never could. I've always regretted that. And the surgeon said, why, Mr. Houdini, that is the most absurd thing that I've heard today. You have made countless thousands happy and made untold amounts of money while I am just an ordinary dub of a surgeon eking my way through life. That may be true, Houdini said, but you actually do things for people while I, in almost every respect, am a fraud. Houdini died that night, Halloween, 1926. Now, Whether that exchange actually took place is hard to say. But what's clear is that Houdini did view himself in some respect as a fraud. And what he was searching for, what he always wanted, was legitimacy. He wanted to be a writer. He wanted to do escapes that nobody else was doing. Do things on a magic stage, a stage usually reserved for doing illusions. But he wanted to do something real. In the next episode of How Magicians Think, we explore magic in the movies. You may know that there have been a plethora of great magic in the movies films. I'm thinking about The Prestige, The Illusionist, Scoop, Hugo, and on and on and on. So, which one is the best? Which one is the most accurate? Which one do magicians like? Which ones do magicians hate? We're going to explore all of this and more with special guests from the film industry, as well as, of course, the magic industry. I'll see you there for How Magicians Think. 
If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think. How Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc. Executive produced by Joshua J, Jared Gustat, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J. Audio Up in-house production by Jordana Glick-Fransheim and Nate Glassman-Hughes. Edited by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. Sound design and mix by Carrie Caulfield-Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from Audio Up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find the ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.